Father, we thank you for the evening. We thank you for the opportunity we have to dig in. And Lord, uh, we honestly don't have any clue what it means to be in prison for you. To be righteous and to be beat up for it physically. Lord, we, um, we know Paul's pouring out his heart. We know that he loves Timothy dearly. He knows that he has few moments left on this planet and he just wants to set Timothy up well. I think in some ways Timothy was probably his absolute best friend on the planet. And we pray, Lord, that as we hear Paul's heart, that you would convict us and empower us and rebuke us and encourage us and do all those things because that's what God's Word does. We love you, Lord, in your name. Amen. Turn to Second Timothy with me, if you would. We're going to be in chapter 4. But before we get there, again, just a very quick reminder. Paul's in a dungeon. It is not a cush prison. It is a gross, gross place to be at. He knows he only has a few days, weeks, months left to his life. He wants to pass the baton on well. He recognizes that Timothy isn't maybe hitting on all eight cylinders. He knows that he's struggling. He knows even that his church is struggling. Which seems so odd because if there was anyone that shouldn't struggle, if you think of it, wouldn't it be one of Paul's disciples? who lived life with Paul and saw the victories and the power and the authority. And yet, Timothy was struggling. The church, one of the most powerful churches, the church at Ephesus, seems to be in need of reminders, some things that are really important. And so Paul's reminding Timothy to stay the course. Be the shepherd. Use your gift. Hey, the Holy Spirit's a resource. Don't try doing this whole pastor thing or this life thing without the Holy Spirit. Be faithful and courageous and unashamed of the gospel because the gospel is powerful. The gospel is what transforms. The gospel is what gives life. Don't be afraid to talk about the gospel. And don't be ashamed of me. We're going to find out even this last chapter that there are probably quite a few people who did not want to associate with Paul because it meant suffering for them. Uh, Paul wanted to remind Timothy to remain strong in the grace message. Don't ever forget how gracious our God is. He wanted to remind him that difficult days are ahead and that suffering is going to happen, not only to him, but to everybody who literally follows our God. Paul was a scripture freak. And he wanted to make sure that Timothy understood how important the scripture was. How useful the scripture was. That he needed to preach the word and study the word. Because the word teaches us and reproves us and corrects us and disciplines us. And enables us to live our lives. He wants... Timothy to work hard at telling others the good news. We ended just last week talking a little bit about doing the work of an evangelist to make sure that people understand the good news that Jesus died in your place and my place so that we don't have to pay our debt for sin. But he paid that debt so that we might live abundantly and might have eternal life forever. And the very last thing we looked at last week is the admonition to Timothy to fully carry out the ministry. Don't take shortcuts. Do the work, whatever God has called you to do with all of your heart. Now my guess is, um, and we have this conversation with part-time staff people here and with full-time staff people here, um, our our part-time people have this uh, fantasy about that. 
that if they were full-time, there would be enough time to complete the task that God has given them. And then our full-time people have this fantasy that says, well, you know what, if I just put in a few more hours a day or whatever, I'll make sure I get everything done. And the truth is, I'm not so sure whether you're full-time or part-time. I'm not so sure whether you're employed or not employed in the church. I just think God has given every one of us privileges to be able to serve Him. And sometimes we go the comfortable route. And I'm just even wondering, I'm, maybe I'm just reading in between the lines, I'm, I'm wondering if Timothy just got a little tired. And he was just kind of fed up. He was just tired of his emails, tired of the cranky people, tired of, and you can put it in there, and, and Paul says, you know what, i got to remind you of a few things. You have an unbelievable position. And I want you to complete, fully carry out this ministry. And so really what happens at this time, that's where we end it, what Paul then does is illustrate what fully carrying out the ministry looks like in the next few verses. So if you're chapter 4, I'm going to read 5 because it kind of goes together. Uh, I, I mean chapter 4 starting at verse 4 or 5. But you should keep a clear mind in every situation, he says. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry that God has given to you. Then I don't know if Paul just kind of thought he didn't understand what that meant, but he's going to give him a little illustration. He said, as for me, as for me, the fully carrying out the ministry, well, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all those who eagerly look forward to his appearing. Paul illustrates well after 30 years of ministry. He said that he kept his hand to the plow. And he said basically he has poured his life out. He says, my life is already done. I, I am very close to seeing my Lord. And you know, you look at some of the things that Paul did. Because honestly, I never, I mean, it doesn't sound like there's a lot of regrets or a feeling of unfulfillment. But would you turn with me over to 2 Corinthians 11? This is just, this just good, does good, or our souls do good to hear this every once in a while. This is the Apostle Paul, and this is just some of his history. Chapter 11 starting at verse 23. Let me put this in context, because, again, if, if you just go ahead and read this, you're going to think that Paul is like bragging like crazy. But in the Corinth church, his leadership was always suspect. suspect. Okay. And so they were not exactly understanding who Paul was or why Paul had all this authority. So all the way through 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Paul is kind of shining his credentials. He's showing them. He's making sure they understand. So it does sound like he's a little bit arrogant here, but listen to what he went through. It, this is unbelievable. Verse 23. Um... No, let's go back to verse uh, 21. But whatever they dare to boast about, all these other people, oh, I'm talking like a fool again, I dare to bo boast about it too. Are they Hebrews? Well, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I know I sound like a madman, but I have served him far more. I have worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes, technically again in parentheses, 
technically 40 was supposed to kill you. Now, I'm not sure what that extra one looked like. But what I'm saying is five times he got the snot beat out of him. Okay. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. One night I spent the whole night and day adrift at sea. I have traveled on many long journeys. I have faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. He had no friends. I have faced danger in the cities and the deserts and on the seas. I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I have worked hard and long and during many sleepless nights... I have been hungry and thirsty and often gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Then besides all this, I have the daily burden of my concern for all these churches. Now, I don't know if that went on his resume. I don't know if he's looking for a job and he's going, Oh, by the way, ministry experience. And he puts that down. But what he was really trying to say here is, you know what? I did everything God asked me to do. This was not easy at times. But you know what's amazing? I just don't hear the Apostle Paul least writing complaining. I, I think he made some facts. I think he was most uncomfortable at times. But there was something ahead of him that kept him going, and this life just wasn't that important. You know, one of the things I'm doing right now is reading in the book of Hebrews, and I always thought we'd kind of go over to the book of Hebrews for a little bit, but then I decided I better stick here for at least a little bit. But the book of Hebrews, what's so amazing, especially in chapter 11, that's the chapter of faith. Many of you know that. But you know what's really cool about the chapter of faith is that realistically all those people that are mentioned, all right, recognize that they were foreigners. The heroes recognize they were foreigners and this was not their home. This place was not their home. They had a home that was being built somewhere else. They had a focus that was different than our focus. Now, I'm not saying that when you get near the end of death, you're not going to miss people, and you wish maybe you could stay around a little bit longer, and you might enjoy some of these things that, that life has for us. But realistically, what happens, the longer you walk with God, the different, you begin to develop a different perspective. And it's not as scary our death is not as scary as it was when you were 16 or 18 or 20. Because you spent all this time just spending time with God. And he says this, My life has been poured out as an offering to God. I gave it to God. I am going to die soon. And then he brings back this metaphor. And again, to some people it's just really violent. But really, if you remember in the Roman culture, this was so very, very real. That, that's all. There was war. There were soldiers all around. This was not something that was new, but this was something that was real. And I think Paul used this as a result. He said, hey, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And one of the things I have marked in my Bible, I have remained faithful. You see, how many of us are great starters? I think sometimes in my life I loved working with high school kids because, wow, I only had them for four years. I never actually understood if they ever finished well, you know. Um, some of them didn't finish high school well, I get it. But, but realistically, it's, it was, I get, I get new people every four years. And I actually, even the hardest ones in the whole world to shepherd, I'm done with them in four years. You know, realistically. So I get, you know, this, this constant influx of people. But really what, what Paul was saying here is that I started this race. And whoever God gave me, I, I took care of. And whatever task God gave me, I did it with all of my heart. And now I am about to die. 
And I want you to know, I remained faithful. Now, he's talking about the last 30 years in his life because, of course, he was faithful in a different way before then. But once he came to faith and once he was redeemed and restored, he was unbelievably passionate for his Savior. And there wasn't anything about that 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 he compromised on. It says he fought a good fight. He, he told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, used the same terms, and there was in the first letter, he goes, fight that good fight of faith. Make sure you stay in the war. Remember um, Paul himself in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, said that our fight is not against flesh and blood, but our fight is against principalities and powers and things that are not seen. I think because Paul understood that, he was able to move forward in some ways. Although he's going to name some names in this chapter about some people that did extreme harm to himself and the church. So it's not like people cannot be enemies or hurt you. But what Paul was saying is, ultimately, I fought this good fight. I finished the race. If any of you ever received an email or a letter from me, you may uh, see on the bottom of my note, Acts 20.24. It's Paul's message to the Ephesian elders. It was one of these times where Paul was in the middle of a journey, and he was coming kind of close to Ephesus. So he sent some messengers ahead of time because he had spent the most time at Ephesus. All right. And he just loved those people. And he said, hey, I'm going to be in this port, Miletus. And if you guys could meet me there, I just want to see you and, and give you a pep talk because I probably won't ever see you again. That got their attention. They came, and that's Acts chapter 20. Well, one of the things he said was Acts 20:24, And he said this, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. Well, you just stop there. Well, what do you mean? My life, my desires, my, well, stuff is not that important. However, I consider my life worth nothing or less, worth less, not worthless life, but worth less than everything else. I just want you to know that. However, I consider my life worth less than anything else. But what I want to do is finish the race. That was his goal. I don't know how long you're going to give me, God, but I want to finish the race, and in the next line, I want to complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me. So my life is not worth, well, as much as I think. What I want to do, you give me a race, God. I want to, I want to go across the finish line. I don't know if you're going to give me 30 years, if you're going to give me 50 years, if you're going to give me 80 years. I want to finish the race. Get across the line. I want to complete the task. And there's a few different ways to translate that last few lines. But the way I think it should be translated is this. I want to complete the task of testifying to everyone about God's grace. Okay, I'm going to finish the race, all the jobs you've given me, but my main task in this world, just want you to know, I want to tell people about God's grace. God's grace is amazing. It's amazing. I don't deserve the position. I don't deserve all the accolades. I don't deserve any of the things God you give me. You're amazing, and I thank you, and I love you. Worship is different when you see God's grace. You respond to people differently. You're more patient when you understand God's grace. You're not so concerned and so worried when you understand God's grace. God is amazing. And it changed. And so he says this. He's given a little, theo a, a little theology of the future, a little theology about heaven. Um, and to be quite honest, there there's a lot written about heaven, uh, but most of us just kind of remember this whole thing about, you know, gold streets and 
Um, you know, like there's not going to be any more tears or this or that. And, and, and that might be fun. Although I just am not motivated on the gold streets and no more tears. I, I think the no more tears is okay. I think that'd be good. I'm tired of crying. That'd be good. But but the gold streets, like, who really gives a rip, you know, about gold streets? And I think that might look cool. But that's not my motivator. And, and really what, what Paul says is this, and now a prize awaits me. And this is so common. Again, this is something he didn't have to explain. He says, somebody in the Olympics, a prize awaits you. But if anyone who is faithful, anyone that runs, remember back in chapter 2, we talked about the athlete. Okay, So these are all illustrations that are common. And he said, the prize that awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. Now the crown of righteousness is really... um, it's a wreath of leaves, okay, and, the, and, and that's the actual term. And to us, it might not be, again, a big deal, but Paul talks about it a lot. He goes, so many people work their whole life for this crown, all right? It's not crown of righteousness, but the crown that a winner would get. But he goes, that's going to fade. I mean, that gets old, it gets dusty, it blows away. So the best thing the Greeks can give you and the Romans can give you is a crown that will die. And all he's saying, he's using the same term, but he's saying, you know what my God's going to do? When I come into his presence, he's going to give me the crown of righteousness. He goes, this prize is not just for me, but all those who eagerly look forward to his appearing. Everybody, everyone in this room, everyone on this planet, everyone who finishes their race, who completes their task, who shares with others gospel of good news, when they see Jesus, they're going to say, you are faithful. They're not saying you need to be Billy Graham. They're not saying that you need so many souls. They're saying, you know what? Finish the race that God has given you. I don't know what that is. I don't know what the obstacles are. I don't know what the ramifications. I don't know what what barriers you're going to have. But God just says, finish. Finish what I've given to you, and I will give you an award. Now Paul switches gears. He's almost done now with his theology. Um, But there are some things in these last few words where he actually just switches to relationships, and you get a little bit of a window into Paul's soul, and you understand a little bit more what's really important to him. Remember, if you know you're going to die, you're going to want the things around you that are most important and the people that are most important to you. What a gift that you know when, when you close your eyes on this planet to be able to have all the, the closest people that you have around you as you enter into that, that next part of your journey. I think that would be awesome. But here's what Timothy says. I mean, this is what Paul says. Timothy, please come as soon as you can. Please come as soon as you can. You know, I I do think that Timothy was his closest earthly friend. I do think that um, he missed Timothy. He just missed the camaraderie. Uh, many of you know, or, or maybe you don't, and, and I'll just announce this, but Matt Furr, the um, campus pastor at Libertyville, is leaving. He's accepted a call to the East Coast, and he's going to be taking a church in Concord, New, New Hampshire. His heart has always been on the East Coast, and this is something that, that opened up. And One, one of the things... Um, you know, that happened today, at least in our campus pastor's meeting, was a time where we were able to grace Matt Fur, And it was kind of nice. It is our last meeting together. It's the last time we'll all be together before he starts his ministry. And we were all able to just go around and be able to um, say thank you for the influence that you had. And thank you for what you've done in this area. And thank you for uh, the leadership that you provided and, and all these things. And he was 
ending his time, and he said this, he says, you know, it's really weird, because I was here when every one of you looking at the campus pastors came on board. I've been here the longest, and I was able to encourage and strengthen and, and, and give you perspective. And it was, it was just one of those things where I think there's some battle wounds of people that do ministry together. I think that happens when you go on a mission trip. You know, all of a sudden you've got 8 or 10 or 12 people who, who are living together and serving together. And all of a sudden the obstacles, you know, you work together on it. And, and there's this camaraderie that happens when you serve together. You know, there's, there's a tight-knit group of different, and you can, you know, plug them in. Uh, I think Paul was just really saying that. He's saying, you know, come as soon as you can. I miss you. But look at these next few verses. Demas has deserted me because he loves the things of this life and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Timothy has gone to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Bring Mark with you when you come, for he will be helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Titius to Ephesus. When you come, be sure to bring the coat I left at Carpus at Troas. Also bring my books and especially my papers. And I'm going to stop there. I think as you kind of look at this, Demas, Crescens, and uh, Titus are gone. The only one that is here is Luke. Now, when he describes Demas, and he's not describing Demas in, in a good way, we actually do know that Demas at one time was a kindred spirit. If you look in Colossians 4, which we won't go there, or, Philipp, uh, or Philemon 24, Demas is mentioned in a very positive way. He is mentioned as one of the leaders. He's mentioned as one of the people that Paul would rely on at that part in his life. But for some reason, Demas, who was there with him, has deserted him. In fact, the word means utterly abandon and leave someone helpless in a dire situation. One Greek word means all that. Okay. But, but you read that and you look at it. So this is not complimentary at all. <laughs> this is my best friend Demas who I relied upon, he was here with me, all of a sudden has left me. I am in a desperate situation. And he decided to take off. Whoa. How does that hurt? How does that discourage you? And it happened. If you remember, one of the people he called and is asking for him to come back is Mark. Some of you know him as John Mark. But remember, the Apostle Paul did not do well with John Mark. Okay? Again, I don't know if some of you realize this, but turn with me to Acts chapter 13. On Paul's first missionary journey, and I won't go into a lot of detail, but really what happened is that um, once the church was born, and once Paul got all of his training, it seemed really clear that the early church should send out missionaries to start other churches, okay? And so what they did is set aside Paul, and on his first trip, one of his companions was John Mark. Now, John Mark was from a very godly home, but we know John Mark was also very young. Paul poured himself into young, into old, into all kinds of people. And remember, his way of discipleship was dragging a person with him and living life with him. The unbelievably best way to disciple anybody. Okay. And so he's got all these people going on his first missionary trip. He's modeling for them how to teach, how to preach, how to appoint elders, how to start churches in this city and then go to the next city and go to the next city. Now, Paul went on at least three missionary journeys, and you call at least maybe four if you call his last one going to Rome. So this was a consistent scenario for Paul, is to take people with him, help them understand what it means to start churches, because he literally would want them to do exactly the same thing. Well, in Acts chapter 13, at verse 13... 
and his companions had left um, Pappas by ship for Fafalia, leading uh, or landing at the port of Perga. There John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, honestly, we don't know anything more about that. And we probably would have just left that. Except there was a huge stink in Acts chapter 15. Paul then did finish his first trip, came back home, and literally told people over and over and over again all the wonderful things that God was doing on this first missionary trip. Well, he's ready to go out again, okay, on this second missionary trip. And he was going to take Barnabas with him and Silas. But here's what happens. Look at the end of chapter 15. All right? Verse 36. After some time, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit each city where we previously preached the word of God and see how the new believers are going are doing. I mean, that's Paul's heart. Barnabas agreed and wanted to take along John Mark. But Paul disagreed strongly. That's Greek for basically saying, over my dead body. Okay? That's what what Paul was saying right there. Now, that seems so odd, doesn't it? I mean, here this master, this forgiver, this lover, this church planner, this this what, what the heck did John Mark do to do this? Really? I mean, he was a young man, too. I mean, could you cut him some slack? Come on, Paul. What did he do? Did he start worshiping Baal? I, I mean, seriously. What was wrong? No one really knows. But Paul drew a line in the sand. He said, I'm not going with that guy. All right, he left, and I'm not going. And look what, look what it says. Um, but Paul disagreed strongly, says John Mark had deserted them, and had not continued with them in the work. You know what my guess is? And this is my guess, and, and I think there's pro- probably quite a few people a lot smarter than I am that, that say this. But I just think Paul, to Paul, finishing was huge. He talks about it all the time. I finished the race. Would you finish this? Would you complete the task? Don't just stick your hand to the plow, and then when things get hard, you take off. And by the way, things were hard when John Mark took off. I get it. But to Paul, that was like the worst. You better finish what you started. I am not taking a quitter. That's kind of what I think. All right. And then, uh, since John Mark had deserted them and had not continued with them in their work, verse 39, their disagreement was so sharp they separated. This doesn't feel like the Apostle Paul, does it? I, I mean, this doesn't feel like two godly people. This doesn't feel, but this is really what happens sometimes. All right. And actually, God used both of these, these things. Well, look what happens. Their disagreement was so sharp, they separated. Barnabas, remember, Barnabas had this reputation in the early church of being the kind, gentle man of encouragement. So I am sure he was also related to John Mark. I don't know if his wife made him or what. But I think, realistically, he had a different heart. Maybe he wasn't as focused. And I don't think he was wrong Okay, because God did some amazing things here. But God used this. Paul was a man who said, boom, this is not what I'm taking. You can do what you want. Barnabas said, I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to take John Mark. We'll go over here. And I'm going to take Silas. And we'll go over here. Okay, and they went in different directions. And here it is. Paul chose Silas as he left. And the believers entrusted them, him, to the Lord's care. Then he traveled throughout Syria, Cilicia, strengthening the churches there. Now again, I don't believe that God would have worked in either one of them if there was some kind of a sin or a problem there. I think this was a preference. And Paul knew where he was going and it was going to be hard and he said, you know what, in my opinion, John Mark's not there. John Mark's not there. Now, just a side note. Do you remember what happens in Acts 16? Paul knew. He took Silas. Do you remember that Paul and Silas were in this prison after being whipped? 
Okay. And they were singing praises. My guess is he knew John Mark was not going to make it again. Whatever. That wasn't bad. Now what's really cool, and you can go back in the history, you can look through Acts, and it's really exciting. But look at chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. Let's jump back there. Look what Paul says, verse 11. Only Luke's with me. He's here with me. He's the guy hanging out with me now. Bring Mark. This is the same one. This is John Mark with you when you come, for he will be helpful to me in my ministry. You know, that doesn't mean much if you just... I think that's exciting. I think John Mark grew to a place where he learned what it was to finish. I think he matured. I don't think Paul wrote him off forever. Paul wrote him off for that second missionary trip. And I just think Paul was an amazing grace giver. He also knew, really, when people were ready for ministry. To me, that, that is exciting. He, he brought, or again, I don't know if actually John Mark ever saw him again. I don't know if he ever came. No one ever says that. No one ever knows. But at least Paul wanted him there because he said I, he's proved himself. That is so cool. All right? And then he goes on. He says, I sent Titius to Ephesus. So there are things, again, where Paul, I think, would like to have people around him but he is thinking of the church. You, you've, you've had hints of this all the way through his writings. I want to make sure the church survives. I want to make sure the, make sure the church thrives. I want to just make sure the bride of Christ is just glowing. Uh, we're here to equip the bride of Christ. We're here to help them be successful. We're going to do everything we can. I would rather have a bunch of people around me and taking care of me in his head. But he's sending people away. Some left. Well, I, I sense uh, for the wrong reasons. But some had to go because they were doing ministry. Then he says this in verse 13. Again, just interesting. When you come, please come fast, Timothy. But when you come, bring the coat. We're entering the winter season. Again, this, this dungeon's lousy anyway. You know, bring the coat. Also bring my books, especially my papers. And some of your translations would be uh, parchments. Um, probably everyone would agree these would be some Old Testament writings. This would be some of the scriptures that, that he loves dearly. And the parchments probably were some of his own letters. Some of the things that he was writing and sending to different people. Well, he, he's just kind of sharing his heart. And then verse 14. And it, it's kind of discouraging. Uh, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. But the Lord will judge him for what he has done. And if we would have just left that, again, I think that we would have seen Paul be able to warn um, you know, people uh, about Alexander, but just say, you know what, God's going to take care of him. I, I, don't, I don't have to worry. And there's some times in our lives where people are hurting us or people are hurting the kingdom work and you just have to pull back and say God's going to take care of it. God really is king. He's going to take care of this situation. It may not be like, you know, you're hoping that the lightning from heaven come and fry that person in front of you. And don't look at me like none of you have wished, not wished that. Okay. Everyone in this room has wished that at certain times. Okay. But God doesn't do it that way. At least I haven't seen work that way at this moment. But look at the next verse. Be careful of him, for he fought against everything we said. There are some times that people bring such destruction, and maybe it's their charisma, maybe it's their fruit, maybe it's something, but a good shepherd will warn when there's a wolf in the pen. And this is what Paul is doing. Um, verse 16. The first time I was brought before the judge, no one came with me. Everyone abandoned me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and gave me strength 
so I might preach the good news in its entirety for all the Gentiles to hear. For he rescued me from certain death. Yes, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil attack and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. All glory to God forever and ever. Amen. Now in some ways... What Paul is saying is he, he will not be protected forever. That's, that's not what he's teaching. But he's saying, while my time is here, my God is going to continue to take care of me. But I am going to be ushered someday into that kingdom. And I am going to look forward to it. Yes, God is whom I trust. God is the one, in spite of my circumstances, it seems unjust, it seems hard, but it's God who I'm going to trust. That was the message he was given Timothy. The message that Timothy was, I am in prison, this is lousy, I am not understanding all the scenarios or the situations or the people, why some leave, why some stay, I'm not getting all that. But I want you to know one thing, I'm trusting God. I'm not holding it against them, but when I went to court, and the judge was there. The only one that was with me, the only one that was with me, was God. Was God. Wow. It doesn't seem right that the hero of faith dies this way, is it? It doesn't seem right a man that poured himself out like a drink offering ends his life like this. And yet he does. Lonely. If he's discouraged, we don't know about it. But ultimately confident in his God. That's the picture you need to get. Is Paul, in spite of all the other things that have now crashed, his health has crashed, his freedom has crashed, his friends have crashed, he's got maybe Luke with him at the moment. All right. But even during the trial, nobody was there. Everyone was ashamed of God. That's who I can trust. And that's where I'm going to stand. I'm going to stand. You know, verse 19. Give my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila and those living in the household of Anesiphorus. This Erastus stayed at Corinth and I left uh, Trophicius sick at Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. Eubulus sends you greetings, and so do Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers and sisters. May the Lord be with your spirit, and may his grace be with all of you. At the end of his life, he is naming people. In fact, one of the most amazing passages, if you look at the book of Romans, it's 15 chapters of unbelievable doctrine and truth. And then the 16th chapter is almost all names like this. And you go, really? Paul, where, where do you, how do you know all these people? What, what's going on here? I mean, he literally has relationships all over. And he's giving them instructions. He's helping them. He's guiding them. He's warning people about them. He's pumping their tires. He's correcting them. He's just like a mother hen. Although that would be a bad image of Paul at this moment. He just kind of gives his final greetings and models again. People are important to him. People are important. Now what's interesting is this. Second Timothy was written before Paul died, and his death probably happened about 67 AD, right before some really unbelievable, harsh Roman um, persecution. Okay? Now, Hebrews was probably written between 67 and 69. I, I still think that Paul probably wrote Hebrews, although 
I don't think that really makes any difference at all. It could be a bunch of different people that have written it. But the truth is, is that whoever wrote Hebrews has something very interesting. I told you I wouldn't go there a lot, but we have to go here. Hebrews 13, 23. Remember throughout all the book that Paul reminded Timothy that he was going to suffer. He reminded Timothy that everyone was going to suffer. He reminded Timothy to hang in there and not be ashamed, to be strong and courageous. Nowhere in any of the scriptures does Timothy mention about being in prison. But look at this. Apparently... After Paul died, which means he probably didn't write Hebrews if this is it, because this was written later. I'm not, con- I mean, I'm just confused about the whole thing. But anyway, Hebrews 13, looking at verse 23, I want you to know, here at the end of this letter, I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released from jail. You know, It's more than interesting to me that Paul set up his right-hand man for success. He warned him, he encouraged him, he pumped his tires, he let him know what was going to happen. He shared with him what was important, how he was going to be able to finish strong. He was going to share with him again what was important in life. He talked to him about ministry. He talked to him mainly about God's Word. And he talked to him about suffering. And at this point, when 2 Timothy was written, apparently Timothy wasn't in jail. And it wasn't a problem. But somehow again, listening to God, got him incarcerated. I guess as I look at this book of 2 Timothy, it's it's easy to get excited to me about the call that God has given each one of us. Not a call to be a pastor, but a call to be a faithful servant. One who is unashamed of the gospel, but one who encourages you to run your race and complete the task God's given to you. You know, um, that's one of the things that the older, the gray hairs, get to do for the younger. Is that sometimes life looks so hard. Now again, I I realize that uh, some of the funniest stories I could ever tell you were 15-year-olds that just thought their lives were devastated. It was just unbelievably unfair and wrong and I don't even know how I could get up the next day. And you're just trying to find out what the story is. And you're thinking maybe a parent died. You're thinking they just found out they have, you know, uh, stage four cancer. You're you're thinking, you know, that all these different things are happening. And you literally find out, you know, that she didn't get a note from her boyfriend this week. Wow. Now again, back then there was no emails, you know, or phones, I don't even think. I think I got my first Motorola cell phone when I was like, my third year at Arlington, you know, like for, for a trip, I'm going like, this is so cool, you know. <laughs> but, but the bottom line is, I was able to be a pastor. And person after person after person To be able to say, hey, life, well, it is hard sometimes, but you know who's going to be there for you? It's not going to be your boyfriend. And you know what? It's I I know you just crashed the car. I know you got grounded for life. I know, and you can go through a high school person's life forever. But then they get a little bit older. You know, I, I don't know what to do when I graduate from college. Wow. Okay. And then they go through, and I'm not sure this is the person I need to marry. And and some of the decisions get a little bit more important as as it goes on and so on and so forth. But the truth is, if some of you have been walking through that or have walked through it, or you're going to your pick and 50th year reunion, 
holy smoly, you've walked through a few things, lady. You know, that's all I can say. But God has given us all this in order to not pretend we're in prison and handing off baton. But I just think we got to continually think about handing the baton off. That, that's what making disciples is all about. It's handing the baton off. I don't know who you're preparing. I don't know who you have influence over. You know, I look at Brian, the young buck of our, our group right here. Brian, you are still ahead of people in the journey. I, I just know that, you know. And you just look around and every one of us have an opportunity to hand batons off. Paul's concern was handing the baton. And that's what I want to leave you with. He wasn't concerned about himself. He wasn't concerned about... He was really happy about getting to heaven. That's kind of cool. But he really wanted Timothy to, to just thrive. What would it be if I could say this? If you knew he had six months left. I don't know. You had... Um, someone tell you and they had great authority and, and so on. What would you write down? What would you want to leave? And I know that if Paul <laughs> didn't live any of this, it would be pretty hypocritical. You know, I get it. But let's just say you guys you've walked with God. What, what do you want to hand off? What do you want to write about? I was actually thinking about this probably because of the message today as I was driving back from Libertyville. I was thinking of some of the scenarios that happen in my life. And actually, I feel like I'm a little dense in this area sometimes. I forget so much. But all these stories started coming to me. And I'm going like, i got to write these down. i got to make sure Josh gets this. i got to make sure Carrie gets i got to make sure little Joey. You know, i got to make sure Joshy gets these stories. I know I was in the car and maybe it was a weak moment and it will never happen. I don't know. But I just think God has been so faithful over the years. Why wouldn't I do that? Why wouldn't I tell those stories to those kids and just say, you know, Gramps is just not going to be around. I'm going to hand this off to you. And I don't know how long you're going to be around, but it's really important that you love Jesus, you love his word, and you tell people all the good news you can. Wouldn't that be cool? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the lessons you've given us. I thank you for the grace that um, overwhelms us. And I thank you for the tasks that we have that uh, we just don't deserve. Lord, would we get to know you more every day? Would we love your word more every day? Would we learn how to hand the baton off well? And so when we shut our eyes, we get that crown of life that won't fade. Thanks, Lord, in your name. Amen. You know, actually, thanks for asking. Um, next week, Sharon and I, Lord willing...